be back with you again. And uh, as Larry says, it's nice to see that sunshine and uh, appreciate you uh, coming inside and not just hanging out in the parking lot all morning. You know, so it's, uh, it's that kind of morning. Today we are introduced to one of the more intriguing characters in the New Testament, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's curious because he's different. But I think you and I both know that different doesn't always solicit curiosity, does it? Oftentimes, different creates fear and trepidation. And so I want to look at these differences that the Ethiopian represents as uh, we encounter him on this road between Jerusalem and Gaza. It's interesting as, you, as we read that, if you're trying to get a mental picture in your map, Gaza, of course, is still somewhere that is talked about today. Uh, the Gaza Strip is uh, one of the Palestinian territories in the uh, in Israel or, or next to Israel today that's often the site of conflict and, and dispute between those two nations. But it, there it is, that, that is the region where this story takes place. He is heading down the coast, down to Egypt, and then following the Nile back down to his home country. But he's going in that direction because he is Ethiopian. And this means that he is dark-skinned. Now, I, I feel it necessary to say that there is no evidence from historical records that dark skin in that day and age led to prejudice on the basis of skin color or light skin. Uh, that there was certainly prejudice, but it was related to whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, uh, regardless of how, of your hairstyle or eye color or anything. Uh, so the, the, the prejudice on the basis of skin color came later down the road. Nonetheless, they weren't blind. Okay? So you can still notice differences uh, without it necessarily leading to prejudice. And so he is different. While the Egyptians and the Jews would have predominantly been brown-skinned, the uh, Romans and the Greeks, perhaps a lighter shade, he is in all likelihood black. He's also coming from a, a nation that is not part of the Roman Empire. He is not part of Greco-Roman culture. And so he represents not just a, a different appearance, but he represents a different culture. And certainly this is, I think, fairly unique from almost anyone else that we're going to encounter in the New Testament. Now, Ethiopia, we're told he's where he's from. Uh, I have a little map here. It's not exactly the same as Ethiopia on our maps today. It's a word that's used to describe um, Nubia, okay? which uh, is, if you follow the Nile down from Egypt, uh, in, in today's sort of geography, we have Egypt at the top, then the Sudan, and then Ethiopia. Well, 
the Nubian kingdom is right there, mostly in the Sudan. And uh, it was a, a kingdom that started about 400 years, four or 500 years before Jesus, and carried about four or 500 years after Jesus. It was a significant kingdom. Uh, and, and so that is where it, it is located. At one point, it extended up. They, the Nubians defeated the Egyptians, and they ruled Egypt. And then they sort of contracted again to that area. But that is where he is heading. He's a eunuch. This is the second difference. The second thing about him that is different. Uh, not really a word we use today. Um, not really a, a custom that we have, thankfully. It's a very broad word when we read it in ancient documents. And it, it can refer simply to somebody in a position within government. Okay, so it was a position that over time had been filled by eunuchs that it came just to be called that. So a, a government advisor or a minister simply became known as a eunuch. Uh, however, I think Luke is probably pointing us to the uh, second and third, either the second or the third meaning, which uh, references that a person, a male, is castrated or sterilized. It could also mean that he was dismembered. And that seems to be the point that Luke is making. Somebody, we're told in the, in the Old Testament, that had been mutilated in such a fashion, was not able to come and worship at the temple. If he was unable to be circumcised, he couldn't become a Jewish convert. So, you know, the, the, you come to the Jews, uh, the temple officials, you say, I'd like to, to become a Jewish convert. And they say, sure, we just need to circumcise you. And that's not possible. And they didn't have a plan B. So he was somebody that was in this sort of ambiguous state as to his identity and his relationship with God. The third thing that's different about him is that despite these what seem like barriers, he's seeking to worship the Jewish God. And it raises a lot of questions about why or how an Ethiopian would get it in his head to travel to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. Where had he encountered Judaism? What stories had he heard about this God of the Israelites? If he couldn't be circumcised, if he couldn't become a, a Jewish convert, why go? What was his goal? What was his purpose? Whatever it was, he still felt this great urge to take the time, the effort, and the cost of traveling all the way to Jerusalem. And so that's significant. That's different. That somebody from a foreign land with no apparent direct connection to Judaism who couldn't become a Jew would make that would expend that much effort to get there. And the fourth thing is that he's a high official, treasurer in charge of the or the person in charge of the royal treasury of one of the larger kingdoms of the day. Certainly one of the larger independent kingdoms of the day. So I said that different can often lead to curiosity or to fear. 
And so as you consider this individual, how do you feel about him? Are you curious or afraid? I think it's easier to be curious from a distance. The Holy Spirit led Philip to this Ethiopian. And can you imagine Philip as he has just been up in Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem. Now he's going to go south of Jerusalem. And he's taken the gospel to Samaria, to these people who are on the edges of Judaism, edges of, of you know, the approved God's children. And he's been a pioneer in preaching to them and saying, yes, God wants these people to receive the gospel and become part of his kingdom. And the Holy Spirit tells him to go south. Now go south. Maybe he's thinking, oh, Egypt. I'm going to go and convert Egypt. Let's start churches in Egypt. Then there was a large Jewish population in Egypt, and maybe that's where he thought he was going. And so he heads south, and he comes. He's wandering, walking through the desert, and he sees this chariot. Now this is a strange chariot. It's from obviously from another place. And God says, that's where I want you to go. He's like, well, he's not Jewish. I can tell. I can tell from a distance that he's not Jewish because I know what a Jew looks like, and, and that's, that's not him. And uh, God says, yeah, that's, that's where I want you to go. And Philip says, but he, I can tell from the chariot, there's gold, there's feathers, there's ornaments, there's, like he's somebody. My last job was serving food to widows in Jerusalem. And this is a somebody. God says, yeah, that's, that's where I want you to go. And so Philip goes up to the chariot. But I wonder, was he curious? Or was he afraid about what he was to encounter? But God breaks the ice for him. Because when he approaches the chariot, we're told he runs up to it. When he approaches the chariot, the man is reading from Isaiah 53. Philip would have recognized this instantly. And, and so it's like, well, now I know what to talk about. Philip wasn't in any place to talk about the economy of you know, the Nubians compared to the economy of the Romans and the imp impact that would have on the price of fish in Jerusalem. But Isaiah 53, now there's a conversation that he could have. It's a passage that People have puzzled over ever since it was written. You see, it's not just one passage. It's part of a series of servant songs. And, and if you were to read these chapters around 53 is a, the last of them, if you were to start earlier and read through and find these servant songs, you would probably be like most scholars, certainly most Jewish scholars and a lot of people since, and say, what was it that Isaiah had in mind as he wrote this? Who was he referring to? Because that's been the question. In fact, it's the question that this Ethiopian asks. Who is this about? Is it about Isaiah himself? Is it about another prophet? Is it about the nation of Israel? Is it about the Messiah? It's difficult to know. Even today, there's a lot of discussion as to who Isaiah himself was talking about. But thankfully, as we look back through history through the lens of Jesus we're able to say we can see how this is applied and that's where Philip picks up because Philip says 
I don't know everything about what was in Isaiah's head, but I can give you some pointers on this passage because I know a story that you don't know. I know someone that you need to meet. And Philip begins in that very text in Isaiah 53 and teaches him the good news about Jesus. I wonder, perhaps, as he was reading it, if the Ethiopian didn't identify with the passage personally. There's some conjecture here, but as I mentioned earlier, Deuteronomy 23.1 explicitly excludes eunuchs from the temple. They were not able to come into the temple, which was a holy place, because of the mutilation and disfigurement uh, that had been carried out on them. And so, in all likelihood, this man had traveled all the way to Jerusalem and then been turned away at the door and, and, and said, no, you can't, you can't come in because you're not quite right. You don't meet our purity standards. And so, did he wander around the synagogue, or wander around the city looking for a synagogue, looking for a place, looking for a person who could teach him about this God, who could fill him in on the stories that he'd only heard little bits and pieces about? Was he looking for a place he could gather with Jews to learn about Yahweh? I don't know, and I don't know how successful he was, but as he travels home, he hasn't given up. He's still reading Isaiah. And if Philip wanted to show him good news, he could certainly do so. Um, 53, verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. And couldn't perhaps the eunuch have thought that was describing himself? Couldn't he have thought that when it says he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, punishment, like those words and those terms could have you know, impacted him. He says, yeah, through no fault of my own, I've been pierced, crushed, punished, wounded. And yet the passage says that these things were done to this suffering servant so that we could be healed and receive peace. If we come down to verse uh, 11, it says that... Um, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And so Philip could have jumped straight in and could have started talking about sin and how and Jesus' death and the, how atonement works at that point. But another thing he could have done is just turned over a cha couple of chapters to chapter 56. And there we can pick up the reading in verse 3, where it talks here about both foreigners and eunuchs. Verse 3 of chapter 56 says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. 
You see, the book of Isaiah changes between chapter 53 and 54. In chapter 54, it begins looking forward. It starts painting a picture of what the future can be, what a future in God's kingdom can be. And whereas Deuteronomy 23 says, no, because God is holy and to emphasize the otherness of God, there are certain people that cannot come into the inner sanctum of the temple. But in Isaiah 54, there's a picture painted of a future that says to the foreigners and the eunuchs, they can come into my temple and I have a place for them and a name for them that's going to last forever. They are welcome in my temple. And, and, and so as, as Philip explains this to the Ethiopian, he says, you're a foreigner. And, and so there are limitations upon you, but, but that's been removed because Jesus has broken down those barriers. He says, you're a eunuch and there are limitations placed upon you, but that's been removed because Jesus has broken down those barriers. Because the kingdom of God has been, ignore, has been inaugurated because there is a new hope and a new way of seeing the world. That's good news, isn't it? For somebody who isn't sure where they belong. And so perhaps this is the reason that the eunuch, when the talking has finished, when the telling of the story of Jesus has finished, he says, what can stand in my way of being baptized? And maybe we don't think about that very much, but he'd been a lot of places where his identity had stood in the way of where he could go and what he could do particularly in religious spaces. You see, he held a position of high esteem, but his treatment that he'd received put him in low esteem. He's not quite sure if he was even fully human. And so he says, is there anything? What can stand in the way of me being baptized? What else is there about me? Philip says, nothing. There's nothing. They get out of the chariot, they go down into the water and are baptized. Most of my life I've heard this story used to teach about baptism. And I think it's very significant for us to recognize that the Ethiopian responds to Philip's teaching of good news with an urgent desire for baptism. He's not going to wait until he gets back to the fine Nile River in his home country. He says, look, there's a puddle, there's a pond, there's a creek, there's a stream of some sort here in the desert. Can I get baptized now? And he does. However, today I want to consider how this conversion fits into the mission of the first church. Because I think there's something bigger going on here as Luke tells us this story than just pointing out that baptism is by immersion because they both went into the water. That could be a very short story if that was all that Luke wanted us to take away. It's important, but it's not the major point. I believe what's happening here is that here we have encountered yet another man on the margin of Judaism. Just as the Samaritans were on the edge of Judaism and the Jews were suspicious of them, Sometimes they wanted to be Jews. Sometimes when it was convenient, they wanted to be their own selves. Now, on the other side of the Samaritans, we encounter this third person who's even further away from the temple than the Samaritans are. 
And he's a Gentile. He's an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch. Things that just put him out of view, around the corner from Judaism. And yet, here's what we need to notice. That this unlikely person is someone that God pursues. Philip is north of Jerusalem in Samaria. And God says, Philip, there's someone I want you to meet south of Jerusalem. And he literally sends Philip running after him. And, and as Philip, as an emissary of God, is, is, is an image of God chasing after this Ethiopian down the road in the desert. Because God cared about him. Although the first Gentile conversion the Jerusalem church had to wrap their heads around was Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. The first Gentile encounters the gospel that we're told about. Encounters the gospel in the desert with Philip taken there by the Holy Spirit. You see, Philip was willing to share the gospel with those who needed it when the Holy Spirit nudged him. And I think it's significant that this first Gentile convert is an African. Not a Greek or a Roman or someone that sort of fit into the culture, but somebody even from a different culture. As though God is making a statement. But Philip is out there with him, and, and it's as though the church in Jerusalem is just going to have to catch up. The apostles have been slow. Remember the rest of the church scattered? The apostles stayed in Jerusalem as though that was the place they needed to be. But that wasn't spreading the mission of God. God was the one who had given them the mission to go into all the world. And they stayed in Jerusalem. It was Philip that went to Samaria. And then the apostles come up and they go, oh, what's God doing here? And they're like, okay, yes, this is a good thing. And we see Philip, God using Philip again to break another barrier, to be a pioneer in the spread of the gospel. Now, in this day and time, Ethiopia represented the southern edge of the known world. Rome was the center of the known world, and as the people in Rome drew maps of the world, the Nubian kingdom was on the southern edge. There may have been something beyond it, but they didn't know for sure, and if it was there, it wasn't important enough to make a, nap, make a map. The world ended with the Nubians as you went down the Nile Valley. And so there's this sense that as Luke is telling the story, that we've seen a completion here in the Great Commission of Acts 1, verse 8. That the gospel has been preached in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and now through this Ethiopian eunuch to the ends of the earth. And from this point on, we're going to see the story is going to change and the trajectory is going to change from the ends of the earth because we don't hear how the gospel gets to India or to Iran or Iraq, which it certainly does. What we're going to see is how the gospel gets to Caesar. Okay? It goes to the edges and now it's going to come and make its way to the heart of the Roman Empire. And that's going to be the switch that takes place 
And so we're left in verse 39 with the Ethiopian traveling down the road rejoicing. We don't know what happened next. There are no archaeological or historical records of churches in Ethiopia or in Nubia in the first century. However, here's what we do know. That the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is one of the oldest churches around. It can trace its heritage back to the second century. So maybe a hundred years after this story that we can verify its existence and perhaps it existed earlier than that. And so here's what I want to suggest to you today. It's certainly possible that the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing and telling others in Ethiopia about Jesus. And if he didn't start churches, he may well have prepared the ground for others to plant later down the road. At the very least, I know this, that his presence in the Bible makes Christianity very much an African religion from the very beginning and has inspired the African church and African Christianity for centuries. If you go to the website of the Africa of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church to this day, they will tell you that it was the Ethiopian eunuch that started it. Now, that may be some legend in there, but, but they are inspired by that individual to say, yes, this is our identity, that we were part of this grand story. It's easy for us. If you're like me, my church history comes through Europe. And even the Church of Christ church history comes through Europe. And we can trace the story of the individuals that were in England, that emigrated to the U.S., that started churches here, that led to Lawson Road. And it's a European heritage. But the, I want to show you a, a picture here of this hole in the ground is a church building in Ethiopia. In about the 1100s, so about 1,000 years, well, you can do the math. In about the 1100s, uh, one of the, the, the Nubians had been taken over by the Abyssinians. And so we're talking in medieval times. And the uh, Abyssinians were very much Christian. In fact, they're called Solomonoid uh, um, rulers because they, they trace their roots to Solomon. Again, probably some legend there, but... Um, they were very Christian. And so they, one of the kings told them to build churches, and they carved them out of the rock. They had a flat piece of rock, they just went down. And uh, you can see that the, some of them, you know, how high they are. And so it's filled with rooms, rooms for gathering, rooms for meditation. And it's not, this is, this is like a world heritage site, but it's not just this building. There are, in fact, over 1,500 church buildings across the country carved out of rock. And this is in Ethiopia. If you were to go up into Sudan, you'd find more evidence of, of Christi Christianity. And so I, I encourage you to take some time. I, I really enjoyed it this week. 
maybe you will, uh, go back and read about the Nubians and the Abyssinians and their history, particularly as, as their Christian history. Because they stood as a Christian kingdom as the Islamic um, Islam spread from Arabia across northern Africa. And you have these Christian kingdoms along the edge of the Red Sea. Now, there was a lot of conflict. I'm not saying everything they did was good. I'm certainly not saying that their doctrine and church practice is something that you know, I would be completely comfortable with today. But here's what I am saying. That from the Ethiopian eunuch, for centuries, God has inspired people to pledge allegiance to him in Africa. And, and that that has withstood the assault of whatever other religions and forces are outside all the way up until the present. And so I want us to, to think, is it curious or is it frightening? God used a servant to widows and a castrated foreigner brought together on a desert refuge. And that meeting, all those centuries ago, began the spread of God's kingdom into the continent of Africa. There's a, an Australian song. It's a pop song, but it tells the story of an Aboriginal man who stood up uh, to fight for his land rights. Um, the workers on the station that had been taken by the Europeans, by the British. And uh, were, were the workers were not being paid. And so initially he started out with some others fighting for land rights, uh, for fair wages. But, but it escalated, it grew, and it turned into, no, we don't want fair wages, we want the land back. I can't tell you how many thousands of miles this was from the Australian capital. I can't tell you how many hundreds of miles it was from the next station. It was remote. But as they had their stage, their sit-in, they met an Englishman. And the Englishman was willing to take up their cause and to take it to Canberra, the capital of the country, and to keep it in front of the politicians and to help them fight for their rights. And the song has this little catchy chorus that simply goes, from little things, big things come. 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 I think that's the story, the message that we take from the story. That these two unlikely people in a remote, unlikely place begin what must have seemed like an unlikely expansion of God's kingdom. There was no Paul. There was no Peter. There was no apostle involved. And yet the impact of the eunuch and of others like him in the centuries to come of spreading the kingdom endured for centuries. And so our question for us is, how do those little moments impact our lives? 
And I could apply it to the little moments in raising our children that help them become who we want them to be, the little moments in our marriages that help them stick together. Likewise, the little moments of temptation that, that take us towards dark places, big dark places, and are destructive. But I think in the spirit of Philip, the question today is how many little moments has God placed into your life? How many moments have you been placed with someone that you didn't know, somebody that was different from you, and, and in those moments maybe you were more afraid than you were curious. Maybe you didn't know what to say. They weren't reading Isaiah 53. And so what do you do? And so I think there's this question. You see, God uses this story to demonstrate that Jesus welcomes those who don't quite fit in to other places, who question their identity and their value. And God uses this story to inspire generations of Christians who come after. So how might God use you? Do you want to find out? Are you curious? Or are you frightened? What those little moments might mean for your life. But God encourages us to think what those little moments might mean for the lives of those people that he places in our path. I encourage you to pay attention to who God brings your way and view them as divine appointments that maybe you're a Philip and that person represents an Ethiopian that is the start of something that you and I can't even imagine because we just don't know. God can do so much with our so little.